The word of God from Matthew 18. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thank you, Elizabeth. Would you, um, would you please stand a moment longer as we commend this time to the Lord in prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, these are hard, hard words. They are hard. You know our frail state. Have mercy on us as we give ourselves to your word. By your spirit, Lord, soften us, make us teachable. Open the eyes of our heart that we would see beauty in this very hard passage and see a path forward into your very heart. For we pray all these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. If I've never had the pleasure of meeting you, my name's Ronnie. I'm the lead pastor here at Denver Prez. Uh, just last week, we started a sermon series on the parables. And, and the reason is, is that the parables are Jesus's primary instruments for like establishing his kingdom. Jesus is a king. Uh, he has a kingdom, but he is a different kind of king. You know, the only crown he ever wore was a crown of thorns, and yet there he is establishing his kingdom and, and even demanding our loyalty. And when you study this theme of the kingdom of God, you very quickly realize that the rule of the land is very different. The values of this king are in direct opposition to the values of this world. 
See, the economy of Jesus' kingdom is such that those who are last, those are the ones who are actually first. And those who are poor, those are the ones who are actually rich. And he's, he's like constantly like, you know, upending and challenging our structures for identity and significance and turning them on their heads. And well, guess what? He's going to do that again today with this parable. Jesus is going to teach us about the true nature of greatness and the true nature of power. I mean, who is it? Who among us is truly great? Who among us is truly powerful? That's the question that sets up this entire passage in Matthew 18. This is the question that the disciples asked. They went to him saying, Lord, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And, and Jesus, in response, he gives these three different par parables that explore the various facets of this question. Our passage that we just heard today was the third parable in this chapter, in chapter 18. Between the second and third parable, however, Peter interrupts, which he does often, and he asks, and this was in our passage today, verse 21, he says, Lord, well, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And um, some of you might properly be inclined to ask, well, what does forgiveness have to do with greatness or power? And this is a question that people have asked in every century. This is a question that even the disciples ask themselves. And, and the main reason that it's so difficult to understand this, the relationship between power and forgiveness is because the, the kingdom of God is countercultural. It's so counterintuitive. Forgiveness, you know, in our culture is often seen as, as weakness. Why? Well, well, what's power? Power is, is depicted as the ability to do something, to, to inflict pain on someone, to uh, inflict justice on, on, on another person. You know, or maybe it's like nat natural selection, right? The strong survive, not the weak, the strong, the ones who get their way. The strong eat the weak. And so there's no place for forgiveness. That's anti-evolutionary. Jesus disagrees. And so the citizens of the kingdom of Jesus must think differently about power. There's this axiom that only the strong can forgive. And you know, that is so true because it is easy to be bitter. It's easy to make other people suffer under our anger, but you have to be really strong to be able to forgive. And Jesus demands that we live as a community where forgiveness is the single identifying feature of our relationships. And how do we do that? As citizens of his kingdom, how do we, how do we cultivate this impulse of forgiveness like in our hearts? And, and listen, you guys, like the stakes are so high you know, on the night before Amanda and I were engaged, we had the biggest fight of our lives. You know, Amanda did not know that that was the night before our engagement. I was staying in the guest bedroom of her parents' home. 
And the very next day, we were slated to get on a plane, fly out to California, where I would propose to her on a beach. And so I was feeling super excited, but extremely insecure. And I was just kind of noticing everything that's wrong with Amanda, because I'm a jerk, mostly. And, uh, and Amanda was, you know, being her kind, gentle self, but she's not one to be disrespected. And I can't even remember all the details, but what I do remember is that World War III erupted. And I mean, to date, we had never screamed at each other, and that night we did. And it was bad. I mean, bad. And worse, Amanda's folks, you know, they know that we're getting engaged the next day because I had asked her father for permission. And I'm sure they heard everything because it was embarrassingly ugly. And we stormed off in separate ways, each to our own bedroom. And we were both locked up in anger. But Amanda, who's more godly than me, wanted to sort of break the Cold War. And half-heartedly, she came to me, uh, wanting to be reconciled. She walked into my room. I was in bed. And she opened the door. And she said, hey, look, I'm sorry. To which I say, good, you should be. To which she says, you know what? I'm not sorry. And then slams the door. And then me, feeling bad, go to her room. And that ends in slam doors. And there's no reconciliation. I mean, we are so stinking mad. We didn't want reconciliation. We wanted vengeance. We wanted the other person to suffer. And our inability to forgive had us bound up. And we almost quit. We almost quit Micah and Adeline and Mia and Ruthie. We almost quit our honeymoon. We almost quit numerous walks on Puerto Rican beaches. All the best parts of our lives. All these things that are like my favorite windows into God's own heart. And all of it almost didn't happen. Why? Because we couldn't forgive. The stakes are high. So Jesus is going to teach us how to move beyond vengeance, beyond this lack of forgiveness in this parable. So let's pay careful attention. There's these two features in this parable that we're going to look at this morning. First, we're going to understand the debt that is owed. And then we're going to understand about canceling this debt. And so that will be how we're going to study this passage. Let's begin with understanding the debt owed, our first point. During World War II, Simon Wiesenthal was taken from a death camp to this makeshift army hospital where a nurse led him to the bedside of a young Nazi soldier named Carl. And Carl was just 22 years old. And his head was completely covered in blood-stained bandages, and he was dying. Now the nurse left the room, and Carl's hands groped for Simon's hands. He grabbed hold, and, and he told Simon that as a dying wish, he'd asked the nurse to find a Jew to whom he could confess to. And so for hours... Carl confessed to Simon in excruciating detail how his unit had driven 200 Jews into a house and set it on fire. And then how he, he shot and murdered father, 
mother, child, as they're trying to escape. And, and as he's saying this, he cries out. He's like, oh God, I will never forget it. It haunts me. And when he finished, he said, I know what I've told you is terrible, but in these long nights waiting for death, I have so longed to talk to a Jew and beg him for forgiveness. And I didn't know if there were any left. I know that what I am asking is almost too much for you, but, but without an answer, I cannot die in peace. And then there was this long, devastating silence until at last Simon made up his mind and he stood up and without a word, he turned and he left the room because the debt was too much. Too much dignity had been taken and by not forgiving, he at least obtained a little bit of vengeance and yet that vengeance did not restore his dignity. He was haunted all of his life by this decision, trapped like a man in his own prison of resentment. He was bound. And so in 1976, he published his book, The Sunflower, in which he tells the story and he invites 32 scholars to debate whether or not what he did was right and Simon Wiesenthal asks, but who was I to forgive him? Like nobody had empowered me to do so. And so you can see Simon Wiesenthal's problem. Like if I forgive Carl, it takes more than I have and I die. To forgive Carl is the death of what I call me, myself, my life. And yet what did Simon's life become? Simon's life is now defined by Carl's sin against him. Simon's life had become a prison in which he was tormented by bitterness, resentment, and anger, and even more tormented by Carl's request for mercy. To forgive Carl is the death of me, Simon thought to himself. And maybe forgiveness is always the death of me somehow, in some way. So it's a sacrifice. The more I read the Bible, the more I am convinced by its timeless genius. See, Peter asks a question about forgiveness, and Jesus responds with a story, a parable about debt. And at first, this was like, this is perplexing, until I began to really meditate on this concept more, more deeply. And here's what I realized. Whenever a person commits an offense against another person, it creates an emotional debt, right? And we, we sense this deep in our spirit, right? The offended person might even be inclined to say, I'm going to make that person pay. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever said that? Jesus uses this concrete image of a debt to help us understand the, the emotional dynamics of forgiveness. And so what does Jesus say about the debt? Well, in our story, there's a king and there's a servant. 
Now, when you see that word servant in your text, don't imagine like a butler or a, a maid or a yard worker. I mean, this is a professional class worker. The servant is the chief administrator of the king's money. And in verse 24, it tells us that the servant owed a debt of 10,000 talents. Well, let me help you understand what 10,000 talents is. And scholars kind of argue over the exact value of a talent. But what we know from the historian Josephus is that the entire tax revenue of Israel that was due to Rome in one given year was 600 talents. 10,000 talents would require an entire army. This is like over 700,000 pounds of gold or silver, more than the annual tax revenue for the Roman Empire. And so what you're seeing here is this is an amount that's beyond the reach of anyone to pay. It, it represents infinite debt. And let me take this one step further. All money in, in these ancient Near East kingdoms belong to the king. See, like in the United States or also in other modern countries, money is considered public money, right? Money belongs to the person who possesses it. But that was not the case in these ancient kingdoms. The money or the currency is actually the property of the king for the use of his subjects. And that's why kings would always put their faces on the currency. And so you see the strength of the kingdom was tied to the wealth of the king. And so if a king were to lose his riches, it could desperately put the kingdom into peril. And I mention this because I want you to feel the gravity of this debt. The, the servant's debt is massive, but note what the servant does. Look there in your Bibles, verse 26. And since he could not pay, the master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all he had and payment to be made. And so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And think about this, like this, this servant thinks he can repay a 10,000 talent debt, but, but he's like a slave. I mean, what, what, what can he repay with? Everything he owns already belongs to his master. He has nothing, no way to earn 10,000 talents. And yet the, the servant reckons he can pay off the debt, but the king knows he cannot pay off the debt because the king thinks that the servant is the debt. The servant thinks he can repay what is owed, but the king thinks the servant is the what is owed. That's why the king was going to sell him and his family off at first. The 10,000 talents was what the king's appraised value of this, of this servant was. That's what he's worth to the king. And so the servant doesn't have 10,000 talents. The king thinks that the slave is worth 10,000 talents, more than the annual tax revenue for the Roman Empire. He thinks he's infinitely valuable. Now, the text tells us, verse 27, the king canceled the debt. And this means that the servant does not need to repay the debt. But it's important to understand that while the king did not get his money back, 
someone still has to pay because the money's gone. Either the servant pays or the king absorbs the cost. Essentially, he's paying the debt. By virtue of not demanding the return on his money, the king is choosing to absorb the cost. You follow? And so the parable continues. Now this same servant finds one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. And he doesn't just say pay up. Like he actually is just choking him. This is, he's a vile and abusive man. And all for 100 denarii. Now listen, 100 denarii is no small amount. 100 denarii is a... It's 100 coins. It's about 100 days of labor, maybe about three months. So obviously losing 100 denarii hurt a little bit, but you could pay it back within a few months. And that's why, though, when the king learns about this, and we're going to look at this more here soon, but when the king learns about this, he's irate, and he throws this man to the jailer. And just, just so you know, like in the Greek... That word for jailers, tormentor. He throws them to the tormentors. Like, like what we heard with Simon Wiesenthal, withholding forgiveness is tormenting. It's deforming. It's torturous. And so what's the point in this parable of Jesus highlighting these two amounts, the amount between the king and the servant and the amount between the servant and the servant? Like what is Jesus trying to say? He's saying that the behavior of the servant is unthinkable. It's like it's ridiculous. It makes no sense in light of the fact that he had been forgiven so much. This debt, this offense is small in comparison. It's almost as if he's completely ignorant to the king's merciful actions towards him. And why is this so important to notice? Because Jesus is telling us that the citizens of his kingdom acknowledge this disparity between the debt to God and the debts that we have between one another. Citizens of the kingdom live in a completely different way. They live and they, and they forgive in a way that's like seemingly impossible. Unless, and, 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 that, and, and when you see like how impossible this is, the only way to get this right is if you're keenly aware of this forgiven debt that you have. I mean, what else? Why else would there be motivation to turn the other cheek? Like who would do that? What, what, what motivation would there be to like love your enemies? I mean, we have nothing, I mean, nothing to gain by doing these things. What would ever compel us to live in that way? See, life in Jesus' kingdom is marked with people who forgive each other in this inexplicable way. And the only way that you and I will forgive the debts of people who have offended us is if we could put that debt into the context of a bigger story when we become keenly aware of, uh, of the pardon God granted for the massive debt that we have against him. And only then will we have compassion on people who have offended us. For Amanda and I on that night, 
The sun was going down on our anger, and it was only growing. Each encounter made it worse as we demanded payment from each other. The I'm sorry had to be at least as painful as the original original offense, and so our apologies were really just a weapon of vengeance. The sins seemed too numerous to comprehend, but we were miserable. But by grace, you know, the Spirit changed in us, and we were able to grab each other's hands, and we prayed to a king who gave his life for ours, a king that gave everything for two immature self-centered young 20-somethings. And by forgiving, we were sacrificing. We were sacrificing our lives, 10,000 talents, but we were getting the life of Christ instead. Family, like how would the recognition that we owe 10,000 talents be advantageous? And even hope-giving in our relationships with one another. Like, that is, if two people share that same recognition, like, how long will that relationship last? What if a group of people with that same same understanding came together as a community? I mean, how long could that community last? And what if we practice this together? It could literally change the fragrance of this beautiful, small little church in Northeast Denver. But if we fail to understand that we have been forgiven 10,000 talents, then our lives will become an absurdity. And our friendships and our marriages and even this church might not make it. Might not. So, so far, I've tried to help us understand this debt. That was our first point. But let's look again at canceling the debt, point two. Now, I mentioned earlier, to cancel a debt does not mean that it goes away. The debt must be paid down. And so the question simply is, is who will pay it down? So in that first scenario between the king and the servant, the king absorbed the debt. In the second scenario, with the two servants, the first servant didn't act like his king. Instead, he made his fellow servant pay down the debt. Now, I want you to read these two verses in parallel, verse 26 and 29. Pay attention first to the servant's plea to the king. This is verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And then notice in verse 29 what the fellow servant says. So the fellow servant fell down, pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. This is the exact same plea. Now there's a word here that helps us to understand how to pay down a debt. In the plea, the servant says, he says, be patient with me. Sometimes have pity on me is how we'll see it. Uh, sometimes we'll see, use the word forbearing or long-suffering. Now, the Greek word is makrothumia. So it's, that's actually a compound word. So thumia sort of describes these deep inner feelings in your gut. 
And usually that word thumia has a negative connotation in your New Testament. Now that word macro or macro, it, you, that sounds familiar. It just means like long or extended. And so when you put this, these two words together, it suggests that a person would stay fully composed and resisting anger under difficult circumstances for a long time. Fully composed, resisting anger under difficult circumstances for a long time. And this is what the good king exhibits. And this is what is absent in the life of the servant. And the parable is inviting us to cancel the debt, to, to pay down the debt. How? By forbearing the offenses of others. Now remember, there's two ways to pay down a debt. You can make the other person pay. And how do you do this? We punish them with our harsh words. We ignore them. We slam doors. We withhold relationship from them. We tell other people about how terrible of a human being they are. We gossip. Or sometimes we just take the passive approach. We say, you know what? You're not even worth my anger. But we make them pay down the debt. And it feels good. It feels so good. It's like therapy to make them suffer for the harm that they have caused us. And that's one way to pay down the debt. And it works for a little while. But the problem is, and hear me on this, is that the anger actually transfers into you and it twists you and it changes you. And you might feel better in the short term, but it will melt you into its own likeness. And if you make them change, or if you make them pay, you will be the one to be changed. Your humanity will be altered and you will never be free from it. And it will continue to control you. Anger and unforgiveness has an appetite, you guys, of its own. Unforgiveness is never satiated. It will look for more and more reasons to express new anger, to express new unforgiveness, and you will be a slave to it. It will torture you. But there's a second way to pay the debt down, and it's by absorbing it. To endure the pain without responding in kind. Like when someone hurts you, you absorb the pain without biting back. And it hurts. Like it's not easy. Instead of making them pay the debt of pain, you keep it and it hurts and and you take it upon yourself, this debt of pain. And each time, like you want to bring it up. You want to bring up their offense and make them pay, but instead you choose to just take it. It hurts. And each time you want to give someone the silent treatment, but instead act warmly and humbly. It hurts. I'm telling you it hurts. Like each time you resist the temptation to make that other person pay, but instead absorb the pain. It really hurts. I know it hurts. But you are indeed paying the debt down. And that option is personally costly. You're absorbing the pain. You're absorbing the debt. But guess what? It won't pass into you 
It won't deform you. And you'll be free. Freedom or torture is what is at stake. And so notice, though there at the very end of verse 34, the the parable takes a very interesting twist. Look at verse 34 again. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers, the tormentors, until he should pay all his debt. Now earlier in verse 22, Jesus tells Peter that he should forgive 77 times or 70 times seven times, which, you know, some infinite amount of forgiveness. But then in verse 34, the, ting, the, 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 the king is, is depicted as getting angry and very quickly and then having this ungrateful servant put in jail and put in jail and tortured. Is this a mistake? Is this like a contradiction? I mean, where's the 70 times 70 forgiveness in verse 34? It's not, it's not a mistake. And this, this is where we all need help in understanding the limits and purpose of parables. See, just as the debt is not literally a debt, the jail in torture is not literal either. Rather, this image graphically and sternly depicts the consequences of living a life of unforgiveness. It's torturous. You're throwing yourself in a jail. And so for Christians, it's morally wrong to withhold forgiveness. But it's not like morally wrong in like this abstract way. It's personally harmful. Like if you withhold forgiveness and do not practice forbearance with others' offenses, you will live a tortured existence and one that is enslaved to resentment. That is what this image is meant to conjure up in your imagination. That's how the parable is working on your heart. And let me illustrate how this works. And I read this from Tim Keller in one of his books. There's this church in Virginia, and, and across the street, there was a family. And the parents made it very clear that they had no desire to go to church. But, you know, the children of the family seemed very interested. Uh, the church had a lot of fun things, you know, for children. And the children were always longingly watching from a distance because they wanted to go to church and participate. Well, one day, the pastor walked across the street and very politely asked the parents if he could take the children to church. He said that he would take care of them, he would feed them, and kind of bring them back in a timely fashion. And just even at the invitation, the father grew very agitated. He even began to tremble with anger. And with this very intimidating tone, he says, no way. When I was growing up, my father was so controlling. He used to shove religion down my throat and he made me feel so guilty. I would never do that to my children. Now go away. What's interesting is this man thinks he is free from his father's sin. But is he? But is he? His father is still controlling him and he is not free. Don't you see? trembling voice. Until he can forgive his father, the father's sin 
will continue to persuade and dictate the man's life, the anger, the pain. Those things are still directing and shaping his life, you see. And without him knowing, the anger of the father for his father was transferred into him. It changed him. It tortured him. It enslaved him. And the unforgiveness was the most powerful force in his life. And it distorted his humanity. If you make the other person pay down the debt, instead of paying down the debt by absorbing it, then anger and resentment will be passed in to you. And you will be a tormented slave in jail. It's not, guys, listen, it's not a coincidence that when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, and he was like instructing them, like, like, this is how you should pray. He says, like, forgive us our debts as we forget our debtors. Because there's a relationship between those two things because God's mercy transforms. Or maybe we could say it like this, forgiveness not shown is forgiveness not known. Like mercy is not effectively re received until it's shown. The gift of forgiveness is not truly received until it's given to others. And people who live in the kingdom of God, people who have Jesus as their king, they should have this reflex to cancel debts in the same way that their debts were canceled. They understand the relationship between the two. See, that vertical forgiveness is, is received when that horizontal forgiveness is practiced. Forgiveness of each other's debts awakens our experience of being forgiven by God. And listen, my, my, like, my pastoral experience, I've been a pastor for over 15 years now, like it totally bears this out. Like when I speak to people who say, man, I don't feel forgiven by God. Like maybe they're struggling over something in their past and they say, I don't feel forgiven by God. It's because there's always a person in their life that they struggle to forgive. And so they can't experience God's sure forgiveness because they know that they are harboring unforgiveness in their own hearts. The correlation between the two is very, very clear. And by telling you guys this, this is not like a threat. This is, this is like an invitation to be free from the torture and to experience deep and true forgiveness from God. Want that for you. All right, let me conclude my sermon with a few things here. And listen to me. Like, I know that there are people here who have experienced truly evil things. I'm not here preaching at you, just like naive to the pain that you have experienced. Some of you have experienced cruel and awful sins against you. And I am so sorry. I'm so sorry that you've had to experience such evil in your life. And like, I wish, like, I wish I could take it away. But I can't. I can't take it away. 
And I don't know, like, I don't know why God allows these things to happen. But what I do know is that he understands and that he's doing something about it. And I know this because truly evil things happen to Jesus too. Like he experienced cruel and evil things too. Now, forgiveness does not mean that there are not consequences for the offender, but it does mean that we relinquish the right to make the other person pay. That is not your job. Many of you have probably heard the story of Corey Ten Boom from the book, The Hiding Place, and I wanted to tell one more story from World War II with a different resolution. If you don't know, Corrie ten Boom was a young Dutch girl who was thrown into a Nazi prison camp with her sister. And Corrie saw her family killed at the hands of Nazi guards. Corrie loved Jesus. And after the war, she was the speaker at many conferences. The key themes at the conferences were the, the, were like forgiveness and reconciliation, all those things that we have in Christ. That's what she would teach on. And one day, after a long day of teaching, a man approached her, and she recognized his face immediately. This was the most mean and cruel guard from the Nazi camp. This man had been truly evil towards her and her family. But something was different. He spoke very softly and respectfully. And he said, I am so thankful to hear you speak. I'm so glad to know that I have full forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And he reached his hand out to her. And in that moment, she was afraid, angry, sad. And she prayed in her spirit. She said, Lord, I can't forgive him. Can you give me your forgiveness to give to him? And something happened in her soul. And they grasped hands. And that moment, she would say, would change her forever. Years later, she would write about that encounter. She said, for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner, I had never known God's love so intensely as I did in that moment. Jesus wants us to experience that inexplicable forgiveness, his love through it. And you will never be free from those evil sins committed against you. I say this with fear and trembling, but until you forgive, and I I know I know that I'm asking you to do the impossible. I know that I'm asking you to do something that is completely different to every instinct in your heart. I'm asking you to become weak and to die a little bit. But guess what? In the kingdom, the weak ones are truly the strong ones. And it takes a truly strong person to forgive. 
And listen, Jesus showed his greatness and his power too by dying. And when he hung on that cross, y'all remember what he shouted out? What did he say? He said, it is finished. Tetelestai in the Greek. And you know what that means literally? It means it is paid. Don't you see? Our great debt is paid. And by forgiving, we're advancing the gospel into our hearts, advancing and incarnating the kingdom in our relationships. And if you want to know what the kingdom of heaven is like, that's what it's like. Amen. Amen.